Heyo, and we're back. Little Howard Stern for you other fans. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's Lindsay, and we are back again with High Time for Change. I apologize for making it a little bit longer than I intended between the last uh, episode and this one, but I have got to plead uh, that I am super busy now. I just started school. Um, seeing my kids a lot. I'm writing a comedy series, and I am also trying to break into hip hop and rap journalism. I know I'm always all over the map, but I realized that a lot of my content for many years has been about rap and hip hop. And I'll write a whole ass article about it. It's just something I'm very passionate about, especially right now. There are a lot of landmark cases going on in legislation right now involving uh, rap and hip hop artists. And their lyrics from their songs are being used to create cases against them and to try and convict them of crimes. Uh, one of the biggest ones that I'm interested in right now is the RICO case involving Young Thug and previously like 27 other defendants. But they have all but several of them gotten to plead out and gotten suspended sentences like suspended tenure sentences and just being on probation. Whereas Young Thug has been denied bail on numerous occasions, uh, despite the fact that he's offered to hire professional 24-hour security, wear an ankle bracelet, be on surveillance 24 hours a day, he's still had his bond denied to be reduced. It's $2 million. Anyway, um, like I said, I've been busy. I've started my college for um, addiction medicine. And even though it's my passion, you know, there's still some math and science and pharmacological stuff involved. And that's the stuff I tend to stumble on. So I'm really putting my nose to the grindstone. Having ADHD, even though it's controlled, really affects my ability to sit down, learn and retain information. But I took out a shitload of loans in my own name for this. Uh, I'm the only one who can control how well I do. So I'm really spending a lot of time on it. And it's rather demanding. So I will continue to report to you uh, as I'm able and you've got my word on that. I can't always say how far apart it will be. I'll try to make it closer because uh, that's another thing I want to say. I want to welcome all of my new listeners. Like Yoko Ono said, people of Earth, welcome. Uh, since I um, put season two out, somehow I have been lucky enough to have a massive influx in my listeners and in my downloads. And I was so happy and humbled to see the other day when checking my stats, which I haven't done in months. Like I checked them obsessively when I first started the podcast, naturally. But I haven't looked at them since I uh, stopped season one and started season two. I never checked back. And I was so happy to see that I've uh, spread to over 25 new countries, um, a lot more areas around the USA. So welcome, everybody. I am so grateful that um, my story and Mikey's story and the story of so many people is making it all around the world. And I really hope it benefits a lot of people. Um, okay, today what I'm going to be doing, as I said in the previous podcast, my format is changing to whatever the hell I feel the passion to talk about. Um, this is my podcast. I'm assuming that you listen to it because you like me or what I have to say. So I'm going to go ahead and freestyle it. And I think it's still going to have a lot of structure because that's the way that I am. But I'm going to go ahead and start talking about one of the biggest issues in my life, which is borderline personality disorder. Uh, the song that uh, my title is based on today is the beautiful, very simple song, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Um, I am a huge fan of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. He is the primary composer, songwriter. Uh, he's a singer, producer. He is literally regarded as a musical genius. However, he has struggled with mental health issues his entire life, which have 
affected his career. He's quit touring numerous times. He's been, you know, put in hospitals, but he's continued to produce beautiful music that inspires everyone. Um, he had an unfinished album that was put out, I want to say a few years ago, but it's probably more like 10. You know, when I say a few years, it's, you know, I think it's two years ago, but it's probably 10. So he uh, had an unreleased album called Smile, and it had a lot of alternate versions of uh, previously released songs and some new songs, and I absolutely love it. Um, God Only Knows came out on the Pet Sounds album on July 18th, 1966, and if you are a music aficionado or historian or you're a big fan of music of the 60s and 70s, you will know that the Pet Sounds album, even though it was their 11th studio album, was widely regarded as a work of genius. Uh, it's not their best-selling album, but it's widely regarded, as I described. Uh, it was completely and totally composed by Brian Wilson. And on the song God Only Knows, Carl Wilson sang the lead, but it was completely composed and arranged by Brian. Paul McCartney actually said that God Only Knows is the best song ever written, and that is Sir Paul McCartney's opinion. Uh, he said that he listened to it for the first time. And was so incredibly inspired and tears were brought to his eyes and he immediately started writing the song here, there and everywhere. This song is also going to be recognizable because it was used as the opener for the HBO show Big Love years ago. Fantastic show about a polygamous family living in Utah, um, starring uh, the late great Bill Paxton, Chloe Sevigny, uh, Gene Triplehorn and other people. Um, I'm going to go ahead and these are basically the lyrics to the whole song. I normally pick out a stanza that I like, but this is the, the song is very simple. And these lyrics are all important. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you'll never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. And if you should ever leave me, well, life would still go on. Believe me. The world could show nothing to me. So what good would living do with me? God only knows what I'd be without you. And I've loved that song ever since I first heard it. My parents exposed me to a lot of their music early in life, and I'm very grateful because it was the foundation of my lifelong love and knowledge about music. I really literally am a factoid uh, <laughs> reservoir of musical facts. I love all kinds of music, and I know a lot about all kinds of music. I should have been a record critic. I should have written for Rolling Stone or Spin or something like that. I've managed bands in the past. I've uh, helped in production of albums. I've promoted artists, but I've never been able to break into it myself the way I wished to. Um, anyway, I found out some other interesting things about Brian Wilson, and they're very, very relative to me. Um, as I might have mentioned before, I am deaf in my right ear. And I am deaf because I was in a seriously domestic, uh, abusive relationship when I was in my early 20s. And the individual had alcohol and drug problems. And that was the first time that I'd really been around something like that. Um, anyway, he was very physically abusive to the point of torture. And one day he felt that he heard something that I was messing around on him. And he hit me in the ear, the head, basically, with a 25-pound barbell. And therefore, my nerves were impinged and I no longer can hear out of that ear. Uh, Brian Wilson was also deaf in the, his right ear due to nerve impingement. And his family always claimed that they had no idea what happened. You know, maybe a neighborhood kid smacked him in the head with a ball. Maybe he was born deaf. But later, his mother admitted that he was hit very hard in the head by his father. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, 
as I said, Brian Wilson struggled with a lot of mental health issues. Uh, he was diagnosed schizoaffective and bipolar. He refused treatment for most of his life. He just went ahead and, and quit touring, took time off, went into seclusion whenever he wanted to, and then he would return and try to rally. He still had a career throughout his life, and he only just now stopped touring a couple years ago. He's 80 years old. Um, but in his situation, his schizoaffective disorder caused uh, auditory and visual hallucinations. And Brian Wilson had trouble differentiating what of these was, you know, his genius and what was just illness. Um, his He wasn't diagnosed till later in life, and his family members and loved ones just assumed that his strange behavior was due to either his drug consumption, which was heavy uh, at many times, many years. He also has eating disorders, alcohol, um, many things like that. Like, for example, he predicted many of the trends of the future musically. He, he predicted electronica and minimalism, but he was afraid that it was some sort of delusion. So he never, he never did that, never started a project in that vein, that which he could have been a trailblazer because he foresaw that coming. But he never did that because he was just confused by his illness. Um, he's been open about it. He can't not be open about it. It's open to the whole world. You know, people often ask me, Lindsay, don't you think you're going to be discredited if you talk about, you know, your diagnoses and, you know, everything that you do is going to be discredited because you're crazy, you have a disorder, I think you should not put so much out there. You know, like I said, there's really nothing left to lose in my life. You know, I don't want to say that at any time because I could just get my ass shocked again and, you know, down in the gutters again. We never know what will happen in life. But um, it is obvious as fuck to anyone who's ever been in my life or anyone who's just observed observed me, especially if they know how many things I've tried and succeeded at in my life. Um, it's not going to discredit me because this is who I am. Uh, I'm sharing my experience so that other people not only know how to express themselves, since many people with mental illness and substance abuse disorders do not know how to show emotion either at all or in a healthy way, and they're terrified of it. They've been told it's wrong. They've been told they should be ashamed. Don't tell anybody. No one will care. You're going to get in trouble. So I am open with myself because, uh, you know, hearing the story of another person, you know, with brutal honesty is can be really therapeutic for you. Um, I've been contacted by a lot of people and said that, you know, when I retold a story or described something in my life, uh, what I've gone through, that sort of illuminated to them what issues they've always had and what it probably is. I've had several people contact me that say that they are absolutely certain that they have adult ADHD and they were undiagnosed and they've sought treatment since then and it was confirmed. So I'm just glad that anything I relate to you um, is relatable and that people can take meaning from it. That's why I'm doing it. Um, everything that I've done has either been witnessed in a total fucking public train wreck or it's a matter of public record. You know, I still value myself. There are people who still value me. I'm pursuing a new career uh, in something that I think I'll be very good at. I'm doing this podcast. It's part of my recovery. It's part of my honesty. Recovering your honesty is so very important in recovery. Um, so many substance abusers are just liars. Their, their abuse and their uh, addiction and their dependence necessitates constant lies, constant subterfuge, forgetting what you've done, the more uh, you know, fucked up you get mentally with your uh, drug abuse, 
And it's just a life in a web of lies. And when you stop using and you're in a professional setting where you're getting guided through a rehabilitation, one of the first things they have you do is recover your honesty. And that to me was one of the most affecting things. You know, my father and I have always had a difficult relationship because he has not been able to trust me for most of my life. That is totally and completely my fault. It doesn't mean that he doesn't still support me mentally and physically and and, uh, financially, emotionally, whatever. He is a part of my support system. But it's difficult because I have way more years of not being trustworthy than the 18 months I have of being better. Okay. But one of the reasons my relationship with my parents works so well now is because I have stopped lying. And I'm telling you right now, it wasn't easy to do. You know, I I mainly started lying in my life to my parents because I wanted to be what they wanted and I knew I was not there or I felt I wasn't there. So I would lie to get myself out of trouble or make it appear that I hadn't done something or had done something else. And I was just doing that to please my parents. But as I've said before, uh, little did I know, the thing they hate the most in the world is lying. They're very ethical, very fair, very above board, and lying is anathema to them. And unfortunately, their oldest daughter, who they loved very much, was struggling, and one of the outcroppings was lying. So uh, recovering your honesty is incredibly important. Um, (laughs) There's actually... Okay, I don't just have borderline personality disorder. Duh. I have ADHD, which manifests in more social ways than it does, you know, school, grades, whatever. Borderline personality, major depression, anxiety, and now I've always had PTSD, but now I've got a really heaping helping of PTSD. You know, on the street, I feel I might have coined this, sorry, but, you know, when when there's a girl who really gets around, uh, you say, she's got hep A through Z. Well, I've got every letter of the alphabet now myself. And this just reminds me of a hilarious time. I love the show, The Office. I watched that from beginning to end with my ex-husband. I don't think I could ever love a character on TV more than I loved uh, Jim Halpert, played by the wonderful actor John Krasinski. Uh, There was a moment in the show where Jim, the foil for him is a guy named Dwight, if you don't watch the show. Dwight is a stickler and a nerd and a weirdo and very, very interested in the company and being loyal and advancing. And Jim is sort of a cute, lazy, fun, funny salesman who really wants to move on. Uh, They have a rivalry. It's not serious. It's just in fun. And there's an episode where the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company decides to start a sales website and sell directly through the website and through salesmen. But, you know, they're trying to capture most of the business online. And Dwight is very uh, opposed to this because he feels that he has clients because of him. And he vows that he will outsell the computer on the first day of the computer. So Jim decides to play a joke on him with Pam and uh, devises a way to message him on the system as if he is the Dunder Mifflin system computer. And, you know, Dwight is, of course, spellbound and, you know, he he gets an initial message and then he's like, who is this? And the computer replies, not sure, just became self-aware. And I just thought that was hysterical. But now I apply that to me. I only recently, I've known that I had mental problems my whole life. There's no way that I could ignore it. Number one, I had the feelings. I had the actions. I had the symptoms. um, And I... I'm a person who's always been pretty in touch with my own bullshit. 
I know the ways and reasons why I alienate people and the type of people who don't like me and why they don't like me. And I know that in certain ways, I am an excellent romantic partner. And in certain ways, I'm a real handful. And I have a lot of annoying habits that are unreasonable and codependent and stem from my BPD. And I am really trying to change that because I'm sick of living this way. And now that I've become aware of how I favor these symptoms, you know, I wasn't diagnosed until 2017 with ADHD and borderline personality disorder. And the occasion on which I was diagnosed was I had made my first major suicide attempt due to incredible stress and abuse in the toxic uh, ex relationship I was in about eight years ago. And He's the kind of person who will literally say anything, open up the whole arsenal and pick the worst fucking thing someone could say to you and say it. And he said something awful to me and I instantly jumped in my van, peeled the fuck out, went to the store, bought a ton of pills and took them. And I was down by the time I could drive to my house, which is about two weeks, two miles away. Sorry. Um, I got home. My ex-husband definitely saw there was something wrong and called 911 and the cops came and got me, took me in an ambulance. And when I woke up the next day in extreme delirium because of one of the drugs I was taking, I was hallucinating like a mother. It was the worst. Uh, and of course, they had a sitter in the room with me, as they do when you're suicidal. And when I was diagnosed with those things, all I felt about it and all that I related in it, I just didn't consider it deeply. I was anxious to yell in my parents' face, in everyone's in my face, see, I had these problems all along. Nothing I did is really my fault. And I really only took it that far because I was still very mentally in turmoil and I was still having very negative, strange people in my life increasingly. And uh, drugs were entering my life peripherally. Um, I just couldn't, it, it wasn't in me at the time. I was still in so much chaos that I just didn't look at borderline personality disorder carefully and what it means and how it relates to my life. Um, my regenerating brain now has led me to self-awareness and it's not getting sober off of meth. You know, meth was a problem to me. Uh, but honestly, what was more problematic to me in my addiction was, um, the environment and the side effects of the environment, the violence, the trauma, the prevalence of dangerous drugs, people ODing constantly in front of me, which is an incredible trigger. Even before Mikey died, I can't stand seeing that. I don't use heroin. So I don't know like a fucking revivalist scientist, like some of these heavy heroin addicts are. I'm telling you, people who get high as fuck know how to save people who are falling out. I have seen some people that barely move in real life spring into archangelish action when somebody ODs. And I'm glad that somebody can, because I never could. I couldn't keep my composure. I think I saved two people alone with no Narcan. And at the end, I felt like a squeezed out rag that would never, ever, ever move again. So it was very uh, triggering to me. All of this trauma that I went through in the last couple of years um, has been, it's not more than I've undergone my whole life, but it's more serious. It's harder and it sticks in my mind more. Um, now that I'm in a safe environment and there are safe people in my life and I have time to reflect on it and I'm no longer in it, I totally and completely have studied this uh, disorder and realized all the things I've done in my life are totally and completely emblematic of that. 
and my ADHD, which was never controlled. Um, I was never diagnosed with ADHD when I was a child because I was an, had excellent grades. I was an excellent student, very smart. The ADHD uh, was manifesting in social uh, issues. And it's, I still think it's strange um, that, you know, with, with some of the social problems I was in, uh, because of my, you know, preferences and guys, um, whatever. It's kind of strange to me that no administrator would, you know, kind of suggest that I be investigated for something, but it never happened. And there are a lot of people who I know who have slipped through the cracks and it's crazy, but it happens a lot. And all we can do is when we find out, we move forward addressing it conscientiously and do the best that we can. Um, I have alternated uh, since my diagnosis and other diagnoses of health issues that I have, I have mainly felt extreme anger. I have, and it's a fact, I have been a victim of medical malpractice many times in my life, uh, from misdiagnosis to uh, sexual assault in an institutional situation uh, to plenty of other things. I have pretty much been used as a guinea pig as far as uh, psychiatric medications, uh, an early doctor who barely ever even saw me or spoke to me uh, wrote down that I was bipolar without any further explanation. And therefore, all I've probably seen 30 shrinks in my life, fully, fully 30 shrinks. And each one after that first one just looked at my notes and was like, oh, she's bipolar. Let's just go ahead and go with that. It was extremely lackadaisical. And it's very frustrating because I have always been, uh, due to my family's very hard work, a person of means and resource. And I also had a fair number of doctors in my family. Um, it's kind of crazy that even I slipped through the cracks. Uh, you would sort of think that the uh, medical outlets I was attending, uh, the quality of the doctors would go a little further. But no, it was basically just passed on the line, down the line, down the line, just like it was. And, you know, companies I worked at later, pass the buck, pass the buck. And Continuing to not be treated correctly for my disorders uh, really, really caused a lot of chaos in my life. And you will hear why when I start discussing uh, borderline personality. But like I said, it was not the getting sober off of meth. I mean, definitely I needed to be off meth. It is an incredibly stressful lifestyle. Your entire life is devoted to getting drugs for, you know, your significant other or you or someone else you've got to do every single little flip and dip that comes up that you could benefit some way monetarily or drug wise with 24 7 you're coming up with this bullshit that bullshit this bullshit in case that bullshit doesn't work out and then seven backups for the backup for the backup for the backup for the bullshit you're planning so it was an extremely destructive environment for me it brought out all of these negative traits that my borderline personality uh, tends to cause. It literally brought out the worst in me, the world, the people around me, and everything. But what's gotten me better and raised my self-awareness and allowed me to explore my past and try to navigate my future is the downtime and being in constant therapy, which is something I've always resisted due to the early sexual assault I had in an institutional situation. And I'm sorry, that really affected my life. And I also feel that I was not believed by some people in my life, which further compounded it. It has caused resentment and fear and, you know, increasing PTSD ever since it happened. And it's been 30 years. So having downtime, rebuilding relationships with people, engaging in things like when I was on probation, I had a bunch of things I had to go do. Probation is, 
is made that way. So you fill your time, you report to things, you have rules you have to follow. And that's why most people fail at probation. Um, they either don't know another way or want to make people think they don't know another way. And they just don't have any idea how to get into that routine. Uh, for me, when I was incarcerated last year, which, uh, by the way, in five days, it is my one year anniversary of uh, being free and coming home and trying to rebuild my life. So I can't believe it's been so long, but in some ways it feels like it never even happened. I mean, the, some, some of the years that I just went through are becoming a blurry amalgamation of shit, which is what I need them to be. I am tired of them being in the rearview mirror, extremely clear. I have a tendency to look in the rearview mirror often when not necessary. Um, and I don't want to dwell on certain things. So thankfully the downtime and the therapeutic atmosphere and the safety I've experienced has allowed me to let go of the freshness of the trauma that I've been in for the last, you know, five to eight years, really the last five years have been the serious things. Uh, that's when I became homeless and my addiction increased and I experienced a ton of trauma. And then of course, culminating in this relationship with a very serious heroin addict and then his death. That's a lot. I put myself into all of it. A lot of people ask me, "Are you, do you regret that you met Mike and fell in love with him and had to watch his, you know, devolving and then his death? No, I'm not sorry at all. Um, Mike was a person who was generally, when he wasn't acting out of character toward the end because of this new uh, dope that came into our area at the time, he was a very wonderful life partner. He's so fun. He's so funny. He's so sweet. We didn't fight. Um, yeah, there are going to be a lot of people who are like, yeah, you ripped on him every day for, uh, you know, doing dope. Well, it's because every, every day it was, this is the last day I'm going to get clean today. It was an expensive, heartbreaking, disappointing cycle. And I put myself in that because I just loved him so much. And I never want to be the person who's the hundredth person to run out on someone and make them believe that help isn't possible and everyone's fake and everyone leaves them in the dark times. I always want to be the hero. And that's a lot because of my BPD. And it's also because of my childhood. I want to be very valuable to someone. I want to be the problem solver. I want to be the one with the answers. I want to be the one with the most knowledge. And that's not narcissism. I want to build value to people. Uh, people who are borderline have a lot of um, serious issues with interconnection with people and relationships. Um, repairing my relationships and having a schedule, having accountability, that has shown me uh, my faults, my weaknesses, my frailties, my actions, and my motives, and why it works or doesn't work now versus why it did not work then. Okay, so self-awareness is sort of a painful thing. But it's a great thing because you're freeing yourself from your shackles. You know, I was in shackles my entire life with two very serious issues that I did not know I had. I was being incorrectly treated medically and therapeutically for a disorder I do not have. And a lot of my psychiatric journey along the way was marred with a lot of serious trauma that made me unwilling to participate in my treatment in my later adulthood. If I was getting proper treatment, 
from an actual, you know, psychiatrist, I would never have been put on that um, contraindicated medication cocktail in 2015 and therefore lost total control of my life. Uh, One of those medications, I had a DNA test last year to help my doctors uh, match up medications with me that would work and not be contraindicated with with my body chemistry and my blood type. And it came out that the two drugs that have taken me off the rails more than any are in my red zone. They are extremely contraindicated due to, quote, effects are completely unpredictable. It is not jibe with my body. No shit. When I started to take Celexa with Wellbutrin, I may as well have just poured rocket fuel into my body. I was spending money. I had become, I don't want to say promiscuous, but I generally after I was married and had kids, you know, when you have kids, you don't really want to give your body to someone else. You know, you're with your husband, you go through your pregnancies, you know, your body is not what it was. Um, Just something about the motherhood process to me made me a little bit more shy. I've always been pretty confident in my looks and, you know, definitely was never in any question that my ex-husband loved me and was attracted to me. But it's just something that I've always dealt with. Um, I also started uh, smoking pot for the first time in like nine or 10 years when I took that medication. I was gambling again. I used to gamble in my early 20s quite a bit. I had a good job and I had a lot of extra income and my husband and I didn't have kids yet and we went out constantly. I gambled. I was a lucky gambler. I wasn't losing money, but I was tickling my tiddlywinks, so to stay. When I walk into a casino and I hear the ding, 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 and all the lights, I geek out, man. That's my scene. Thinking of winning, the risk, the lights, the sounds. I like everything like that. Um, Everything I like, I've realized. I've been spending my whole life trying to realize why I like the things I do from an early age and then why my life followed that trajectory. I have been making up a theory for years. I call it crystallizing. And it just all came crystal clear to me in the last week when I was, you know, researching and writing this uh, podcast that those things appeal to me because the characters in the movie or the musicians or the subject is BPD. For example, one of my favorite movies of all time that I've seen hundreds of times is Fatal Attraction. I adore Michael Douglas. He's one of my favorite actors. The the mood of that movie, the artfulness adrian line is an incredible director and he has another incredible movie about um adultery and the cost it's called unfaithful with uh, diane lane and richard Gere and olivier martinez it's a great movie and you'll see you know adrian line's artistry throughout these two movies i love both of them but fatal attraction is the one i have read a lot about this movie i've researched it i have uh media with the alternate endings that were scrapped for U.S. audiences because they were too uh, edgy and violent. They thought were, they would think it was alienating. But I only recently read a, an article. The article was entitled, um, like, 10 times that Hollywood got it right depicting BPD. And it was movies and shows where the lead character either openly had borderline personality or co- the actions completely and totally lined up with it. Um, and the character of Alex played by Glenn Close in uh, fatal attraction is a borderline woman. And you know about the movie, even if you haven't seen it, the bunny boiling, the kidnapping, the kid, uh, almost killing the wife. Um, yeah, she was way out there. Um, that's an extreme case, but her actions made sense to me. And when I watched the movie in my young years and all my life, 
I identify with Michael Douglas, Dan Gallagher, the man who had an indiscretion and the woman became obsessed with him. And it's interesting to note that later on in my life, I would become involved in such a relationship where someone was obsessed with me and determined to destroy my life if I would not be with him. And it was just so scary to me. Why did I like that movie? Why did I love the movie Fear, where Marky Mark is dating a rich young lawyer's daughter and, you know, he's a little bit more than she bargained for in the end and starts terrorizing her family? Why did that appeal to me? Because... In a few short years, I would blossom at the age of 11 into a fully raging shitstorm of BPD and ADHD. That is normally the onset age for uh, mood disorders due to puberty. And there I went. Uh, let's talk about some of the uh, symptoms and what BPD is. Um, first of all, the causes are thought to be um, childhood abuse and trauma. Up to 70% of people with BPD have experienced sexual, emotional, or physical abuse as a child. Maternal separation, me, poor maternal attachment, me, inappropriate family boundaries, someone else I know, and parental substance use, not in the case of me, but another person I know closely, are also associated with BPD. Another thing about BPD is it has a bunch of comorbidities. That means that it can cause a whole bunch of other disorders to crop up and other destructive behaviors. Um, borderline personality disorder. First of all, this is a disorder. That does not mean a disease, and it does not mean there's something wrong with you. It means that the way that you act socially and in response to certain stimuli is not what people would expect. It is against the grain of what is accepted as a social norm. And undoubtedly, it is something that causes your social interactions and your feelings to be very labile and very um, harmful sometimes. Um, people with BPD and I can totally attest to this, uh, they feel like they're on a roller coaster. It's not just because of the unstable emotions, um, you know, the waves of extreme anger and um, unstable relationships, but also people with BPD do not have an accurate view or perhaps often no view at all of who they are. Their self-image, their goals, uh, their likes and dislikes are often subject to change vastly and quickly because they really don't know who they are. Um, I used to say, and I said this to many people, and this was after observation. As I said, when I became homeless and entered the street and the drug scene, I was initially in a different crowd. And looking back, I just don't understand how this happened. And I know that there were heroin addicts around me all along. But I was running around with a group of people who only did and sold meth, or at least they said so. Um, People knew that I was really against heroin, that I hated needles, and not to, you know, say or t talk about it in front of me. Um, there were many friends of mine who would just go nuts if somebody tried to pull out a needle in front of me. They really held me on a pedestal for a long time. And I think a lot of people continued to hold me on a pedestal, which I always tried to dissuade them. You know, when I first used a needle, I made an impulsive decision to do it, and I was doing a test on a guy that I really liked at the time. I wanted to see if he cared about me because he knew that I was against needles. And I asked him one night, I want to try a shot. Will you give it to me? And he instantly gave it to me, which number one, he sucked at it and he missed half of it and it really hurt me. Second of all, it meant that he didn't give a shit about me. And third of all, it meant that I just made a really serious impulsive decision that would decide the, ne the rest of my next few years. Because even though I intended to just do it once as my test, shit, once you get that feeling of 
intravenous drug use. IV drug users, as I've said before, are whole different animals. We need, we're used to, we demand, and we'll go nuts if we don't get relief from physical or emotional pain or distress instantly. Snorting something isn't good. Swallowing it, no damn way. Smoking it, too long. I need to put it right in my circulatory system. And that's something that I used to say when I was hanging around using with our buddies. You know, sometimes everyone knows who's been out there. You've got up days and you've got real down days. And a down day is like when it took you forever to get the dope. You don't have any new needles, so they're all dull. Um, You know, you're dealing with a person who might not come through. You got robbed of all your money. Somebody gave you powdered sugar when it was supposed to be fentanyl. Anything. The entire thing is so fucked up that all the things that can happen in a day to just crush you are just numerous. And they're all bad. You know, I, I cannot believe that... Even though I had some really fun times, met some cool people, um, experienced some beautiful things, I almost cannot believe that I was able to tolerate all of the conditions I was living in. But the drugs made it easier, and um, I was not medicated the entire time I was doing it. Uh, The reason for that is because when I first went out on the street, somebody stole all my prescriptions, and my doctor would not give me uh, further prescriptions until my housing situation got stable, which was not for a couple years. So I'm unmedicated for my problems, and I am taking heavy drugs, and I'm around people that are very seriously addicted. Therefore, they are committing more crimes to get their drugs and money. I was not in that circle in the beginning, but it changed really quick. And a friend of mine in the past, this is a guy who's had a very serious opiate problem and, you know, lost his child and his partner because of it, uh, lost a great job that he had. And during the years that I knew him, about five, four or five years, he got sober several times. And then after a long period, he would just relapse and be worse than ever. And he was talking to me one day about, you know, I, I had called him about another serious problem that someone had caused me, you know, someone used me or something like that. I was really sad. And he said, Lindsay, let me guess, Uh, your big problems, your big losses, the things that you're going to cry about started when you started hanging around with heroin users, right? And it did. It absolutely did. When needles entered the picture, I was on another plane. And that makes sense to me looking back. But I really just had no idea at the time. I did not know how insidious um, narcotic addiction was. I did not know how insidiously addictive that the actual uh, act of using drugs I intravenously was. Um, There are people, and I am one of them, uh, I loved the ritual of mixing up and making a shot and then doing it. I was very bad at doing it. I used to have other people do it for me for several years, but then uh, I learned, and it's a science. Some people can pop it right in there, and it's cool, and some people it's very difficult for. And so when we had a bad day, when everyone had dull points and, you know, was just grumbling about everything, I would be like, guys, does it ever strike you that we are so fucking bad off that we have to get this shit right into our circulatory system? We're that pressed. And everyone else would just still be looking down at their arm, trying to do whatever and just do, yeah, I guess. It it just didn't hit anyone else. Uh, Just like everything I said out there, basically. I was on a different level of functionality and education and thought process than most of the people. And a lot of people got hopelessly lost about things I was saying and they would just, you know, giggle. So I would stop saying it. So I get that, but it's something I was always aware of when I was doing that. Um, However, let's go over some of the signs and symptoms and then we'll talk more about living with it. Um, I would say 
the number one thing that characterizes borderline personality disorder is a fear of abandonment. Uh, people with BPD are often really terrified of being abandoned, left alone, not being able to get a hold of someone, not knowing what someone is doing. Um, for example, I obviously lived with a very serious heroin addict for several years who frequently overdosed, frequently uh, went through my items and took things uh, and, and traded them or sold them. And I'm not putting Mikey out there. Every addict does that. And he really didn't do it very often. He only started doing it when that different dope was in his body. Uh, that's how I knew that something was really wrong because he never did stuff like that. So basically what I'm saying is my life with him was fraught with constant anxiety. Um, one thing I really don't miss right now is looking at a fucking closed bathroom door, knowing there's a needle in it and someone I love more than anything. Mike was one of those people. A lot of addicts spend most of their life in the bathroom. Not only are they using drugs and they have to hide it from people, but after they use the drug, they're incapacitated. They end up sitting there or half the time if they're doing ice, they sit there for a while. Then they get up in the mirror, start popping zits that aren't there, and they're stuck in the mirror for a couple hours. If you know anything about being out there, you know what being stuck in the mirror is. It's picking until your face is a, just a pizza pie of, of sores. Um, Mike had a tendency to do this. He was very vain about his skin. He didn't like blackheads. He was constantly trying to extract every blackhead just with his fingers that he hadn't even washed. And a million times I had to talk him out of it, you know, but I was always afraid when I went to sleep or when I went out to the store or whatever, that I'd come back and he was dead or he'd be gone or something. So my boyfriend now is a hardworking guy. He's a single dad and he's not one of those people who is tied to his phone. He sometimes forgets his phone in the morning when he goes to work or something like that, or it dies or whatever. And I can't get a hold of him. And even though I know that he's not a heroin user and he's not having a dangerous lifestyle, he probably just forgot the phone. I know he's done it before. I can't deal with my life until I know what's going on with him. Um, this is something that I've dealt with all the time. I used to dream all the time when I was a very young child that my father died and I would just wake up absolutely despondent. My dad was very much my ally and has always been close to me. But as I've gotten older and my behavior has been out of control, we've, we've been distanced. And I don't want to say he was disappointed in me as a person. He was disappointed in my actions because I can do better. And I don't blame him. But I was always afraid my dad would die. And literally when I would wake up, I would have the distinct, deep feeling if my dad died, there's no way I could even continue life. I couldn't do it without him. I don't know. The world would fall apart. Um. This fear of abandonment can cause people to make frantic, um, fearful, impulsive decisions to try to uh, keep someone close to them or to gain more control over them. Um, if there's a physical altercation, they will often try to prevent someone from leaving a room to cool down or whatever. Um, Sometimes, you know, Mike and I didn't fight, but sometimes he would get upset about something and he often would perceive that I wasn't listening to him, which is untrue. I'm deaf in one ear and his mother is too. And he was sick of having to repeat himself. He thought we were both faking and just not paying attention to him. But no, I was deaf. But um, he, uh, when we would get into it, when we lived near his uh, late grandfather, he would just leave and walk to his grandpa's. It was about a mile away. He'd sit there for a little while and then, I, you know, he'd come back or he'd message me. I'm sorry. Can I come home? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, two of these times when we got into it, um, 
I was frantically afraid that he was going to leave. And the house that we lived in was remote. Uh, he'd walked off from it before, and I was afraid I couldn't find him. And I blocked the door when he was trying to get out of it. I regret doing that, um, but I, I just couldn't handle him leaving. But, you know, he might have been a smaller guy, but he was not uh, a punk. He threw me out of the way easily and went out the door. And then he came back later, as he should have been. Um, I've done a lot of things in life to try and bind myself to people that I really want in my life and try to keep my value to them. And I've also overextended myself many, many times in order to please somebody, make them happy, solve a problem. And it's been completely and totally self-destructive. Um, but the fear of abandonment is, is very real and it can cause you to do some frantic and impulsive things. It's very scary. And I am very aware of that part of myself. Number two, unstable relationships. Uh, I'm raising my hand here. I'm actually raising both hands. I will raise my feet if I ever could. I barely can bend my knees, but whatever. I am definitely, definitely, definitely suffering from this. Uh, people with BPD tend to have relationships that are very intense, but either short-lived or uh, very intense and then the magic's gone, you know, and you're very let down by that and you feel even more rejected. Um, we fall in love quickly. <sighs> we often believe that the new person is the one who is going to make us feel whole or take our life to another level or fix things. Um, and then, you know, that's too much for a person to do. It was a Herculean task that I was bound to fail at when I took the responsibility of trying to heal the trauma from Mike's entire life, who was 30, 30 years old, no, 29 or 28 when we met and had already been through a lot. A lot of it was years ago and it was never addressed at the time. I couldn't possibly heal, you know, 30 years of, of trauma in any amount of time. It wasn't my responsibility and I'm not really capable of it. I can give as much love and support as I have to give, which is a lot. I am a very loving person. I try to help everybody that I meet. And even if I don't particularly like them, I do that. And that's because that was something that I always wanted done for me. I always wanted someone to make my problems a priority, to really take their time to figure out what's eating Lindsay. You know, I've extended a lot of mercy and grace to people because that's what I wish for. People who overcompensate are always doing that. They treat you the way they wish they'd been treated. Um, relationships for BPD is definitely a victim of our tendency to split, which is black and white thinking. Something is either horrible or it's amazing and cannot possibly be surpassed. When I know people, I pretty much either psychotically love and support them, find out any, everything about them, promote them in every way, or I am either totally indifferent or I, I hate them. I really don't hate many people, but I have some you know, acrimony for several people, which I am trying to let go. One of them is imprisoned now and I will be safe for at least another year and a half, but I still think about the effects of, of the abuse that was done to me there. Um, also when normal things happen in our relationships, uh, and it causes, you know, the level of attention or attachment or time together to suffer, I instantly feel rejected and like the person isn't attracted to me anymore. doesn't love me. Um, it's very difficult for me to sit back and look at the whole picture and what they're dealing with, their stress, uh, their financial situation. It's not really about me. Um, but I am sort of stuck in that mindset and I'm 
very self-aware of it now. And I've definitely tried to head it off in my relationship now, but you can't, you can't hold everything back. You're going to have your moments. Um, people that are close to you, your lovers, your friends, your family, they might feel like they've got emotional whiplash just from being around you because your moods can swing so much. Um, I, I mean, I know that, that my parents experienced this. You know, there are days when I'll come down and be like, I just know it. I'm about to get some big shit going on, blah, blah, blah. I'm very encouraged about my podcast or I'm encouraged about a connection I made in the hip hop journalism world or I just had a good day or I'm having less pain. And then the next day something can, ha- can happen and I'm literally like my mother walked in on me the other the other week at a very opportune time for her. I was completely and totally sobbing about if certain things don't come together in my life soon, certain medical things, um, and financial things that it will be, you know, impossible or untenable to even maintain my life. I will probably not be able to support myself meaningfully. Um, my health problems are degenerative, most of them, and not all of them are treatable. And in that moment, I just felt like I was worthless. And when I get those downtimes, I tend to say, I don't even know why the fuck I'm doing all this. It's just going to fail in the end. I'm going to freak out and, you know, no one really cares what I'm saying. Uh, I become to the point where I'm devaluing myself. And people who are close to me probably are a little bit off put or at least confused by that. Um, It's just, it's a matter of black and white thinking. I'm always a person who's been very about duality, about synchronicity. I need to categorize things. I need to rank things. I need to get to the bottom of things. A lot of my preferences uh, go to that. I've always been a massive true crime fan. Um, I am a person who crusades for justice for people that have been marginalized or ignored. Uh, when I get a cause, I'm a, I'm a junkyard dog. When I meet somebody I like, I'm a junkyard dog. When I'm on something that I want to do like school or this journalism or writing this series, I'm a junkyard dog. But I often go too far and I mean, well, but it just happens. Here's another one, unclear or shifting self image. Um, I had a friend when I was in my twenties, a friend of my ex-husband's that was, um, that lived with us and was a buddy. He was a really good looking guy and he had a good personality. There was really nothing outwardly wrong with him or you would never think that he, you know, couldn't get a girl or something. Every girl that he dated, not only was she not very attractive and not very, you know, remarkable in any way, he would turn exactly like them. Like one girl he dated wore a bunch of hemp stuff and tie dyes. So all of a sudden he's in that, you know, when he dated a girl who was all preppy, you know, he was in his, uh, Abercrombie and Hollister. This was a long time ago, whatever. Um, I've known a lot of other women who do that. And I've just known a lot of people who do that. They switch paths often in life. They try all kinds of different people as partners. Uh, they change jobs. They change their hair. Some people are even prone to changing their sexual orientation or identity because of this. It's literally just because our personality disorder makes it very difficult to succeed traditionally. And it's also very difficult to make us feel fulfilled. Chronic emptiness is another big harbinger of uh, borderline personality disorder. Um, Often we sit here and feel completely numb and empty and dull until something fills us, you know, Um, seeing another person, 
watching something, um, going out to do something, ourselves are not sufficient. You know, I do not like to be alone alone. I like to be alone when I'm watching TV or listening to my music, but I don't like to be alone silently with my thoughts. And I always used to identify this when I would hang around with users. Um, A lot of people who are drug addicts say the phrase, I feel a type of way. Okay, have you ever heard that? A type of way is just they do not know what, what they're feeling. They mimic others' emotions but they can't get it quite right. Um, Our perception is just different. Uh, I realized that I too have trouble regulating and showing emotion normally. I have coping mechanisms that are needed by me to start coping with things. Um, I'm not as able as I would like to be right now in doing it on the spot. I often get worked up And I need to put on headphones and listen to certain songs that always cheer me up and do certain actions that always calm me down if I am having a panic attack or an anxiety attack or something like that. But the unclear self-image causes us to try and fail at a lot of things, uh, usually waste a lot of money, get hurt in the process, get discouraged, get disappointed, and just never know where you belong. Uh, impulsive and self-destructive behaviors are very common. Um, when you are feeling that empty, numb thing that I was just describing, people with BPD have a tendency to engage in very sudden, impulsive, and risky behavior in order to feel something. Um, impulsively spending money you can't afford, binge eating, driving recklessly, uh, shoplifting, engaging in risky sex, uh, life, sex uh, acts with people being promiscuous uh, when you normally are not, um, trying drugs you haven't done or overdoing consumption of things you've already done. Um, And I've done these so many times that I'm completely aware of what I'm doing, yet I'm sometimes unable to stop myself, even now. Um, It's just a desire for pleasure and a feeling of well-being or a feeling of anything. Literally, like I sometimes when I'm feeling that numb way, I'll decide to go the other way. I'll listen to some songs, you know, that remind me of Mikey that are guaranteed to get me bawling or I'll watch something sad or I'll just think about something that I know always gets me so I can cry and cry it out. And then I've done something to fill my void. Um, It's very common in substance abusers, too. That's why BPD, a lot of people become substance abusers. It's the search for feeling and feeling good and feeling at ease for once and feeling like you belong somewhere. Another major factor of BPD is self-harm. Suicidal ideology constantly is a big factor. Suicidal attempts, um, self-harm like cutting or um, other gestures to hurt yourself, without a suicidal intent, um, cutting, burning yourself, putting cigarettes out on yourself. Um, I had seen some people out there that I knew who had obvious cigarette or cigar burns on their body. And I would always ask, you know, what's up with that? Did you not out with a cigarette or something? And they're like, no, I, I did it on purpose. And it's like, okay, I didn't press further, but now I realize what it was. Um, another major symptom is extreme emotional swings. Uh, I definitely have that. I can keep myself cooler now with my medication than I could before. But 
like I said, my life now is a lot of ups and downs. I have a lot of problems that will take a while to fix and some that cannot be fixed. And those are my health problems. Some days I will wake up in pain and literally not know if I can continue going on. And I'm very depressed by the pain I'm in and I'll be crying, crying, crying. Then, you know, maybe I'll take a hit of my MMC vape. Maybe I'll just turn on Unsolved Mysteries or another show that always calms me. And then I'll be fine 20 minutes later. I know how to get myself out of it now and not have it escalate, but it still does happen. Um, I talked about the chronic feelings of emptiness, um, feeling like there's a void inside you. Uh, you're nothing, you're nobody, you have no self-image, and this feeling is really uncomfortable. So people try and fill the void with things like drugs, food, sex, uh, shopping, but nothing ever feels truly satisfying. And that is the part that has to be addressed with therapy. Um, another factor, which I do have at times, is explosive anger. I do have a short trigger when it comes to certain things. Uh, I also have the patience of a saint sometimes. Um, I'm in some difficult situations right now, uh, interpersonally, and I'm trying really hard to be conscientious of them, but I cannot lie. Sometimes when I'm in the situation, I just want to blow the fuck up, but I can't. Um, I also feel a lot of time being angry at myself. I spend a lot of time being angry with myself rather. Sorry. Um, I'm very angry at the things that I did when I was on that medication, which, uh, sent me haywire. I'm very angry about the things that I continue to do. I'm very angry about the people that I hurt. Um, I'm angry about all the doctors who failed to treat me properly. Um, I'm angry about a lot of things that I failed to do that I knew better. And this is something that really does hold me down at times. My counselor says that I really need to process my grief and my shame and my guilt about what's happened. And I'm trying to, but it's a lot. It's a whole lifetime. And I'm really trying to watch my anger now. I do not like getting keyed up about things. I don't like having outbursts that somebody can note and be like, oh, Lindsay's still fucked up. You know, it's, she hasn't changed at all. So I'm conscious of that. And here's another one, big one, feeling suspicious or out of touch with reality. <sighs> this is something that I have a lot of problems with. Some of it is, you know, organic because I have BPD. And some of it is because I have put myself out there quite a bit in life. I've been used a lot and being used is something I feel often. However, when I feel, you know, ill used, I sometimes cannot hearken back to the fact that I started it. For example, all my life, when I get in relationships, even friendships, I always spill the beans too soon about what I can do to help you. And it's usually evident that I have a lot more resources than other people. Uh, especially when I was out on the street. So that attracts people who are users and want to get anything any way they can. Don't give a fuck about your feelings. When you have BPD, because you lack self-awareness and self-image and don't know where you belong and you feel empty, you will generally try almost anyone. I don't mean almost anyone. I, I just mean when you meet somebody that there might be a vibe with you need to go after it and you need to try as many times as possible when it doesn't work with people. That's how we feel. And until you examine your own actions, and as they say in rehab, check your motives and check your assumptions, uh, you're not going to be able to get, a, get over those suspicious thoughts. Um, I still do feel sometimes like I don't belong anywhere or in the situations that I'm in. I feel like I've cashed out all my worth and all my credibility and my name and everything, and I feel like I'm never going to get it back. And... BPD people also tend to dissociate. 
which means kind of leave your body, get spaced out, get foggy, feel like you're not even in it. And I tend to do this when I'm under extreme stress and in trauma. That's part of putting on the headphones. I also stare with, un, with fixed eyes and I'm not looking at anything. My eyes have narrowed and blurred and I'm just staring. That's how I get when I get that way. And I am suspicious of other people's motives just because of what I put myself through and how much loss I have experienced because of it. And that's my own fault. But it still does trouble me because it makes me unable to accept people who truly do love me. And I am always questioning whether they're really plotting to lock me up or, you know, some other thing. And those are all based on nothing, but it's a feeling that sometimes overtakes me. And I do take my medication religiously. I've, I've taken it religiously since I got home. Well, actually I took it religiously when I was locked up too. So I've been medicated now for like 18 months and it, it does more good as it passes and the therapy I'm doing helps. But um, all these things for me are still there sometimes. They're less. You know, BPD is not something that can be treated with a specific medication. It's often treated with similar medications to bipolar or antipsychotics because there are features of that. But there's no medication that definitely cures it. Um, It takes treatment. It takes therapy. It takes um, investigation of yourself, um, being honest with yourself. And looking at what you've done over the years that has tanked you, that you've lost a lot from, that's hurt you, you've been disappointed. I do, I am more successful now at counting to 20 before I want to uh, judge something to be shitty now or over or I'm leaving or I'm no longer trying or uh, this was always a lie in the first place. I don't know why I ever believed in it. I'm able to talk myself down from that a lot faster. Um, that used to be an inescapable spiral. You know, my, my ex-husband, and I used to call it a shame spiral. And when you think one thing, it just opens the barn doors and then you're sliding down a mountain. Um, and it's hard, but you can overcome it. It is treatable. BPD is treatable. It actually has a higher rate of success and recovery than depression or uh, bipolar disorder do. Um, it is treatable. You can recover. You will always have symptoms. You are not disordered. You have brain difference and you have neurological differences that make you react to stimuli differently than the average person who is not afflicted with mood disorders. Um, you know, BPD is also something that pulls a whole bunch of shit into it with it. It's like a tornado that pulls everything in. Um, depression and bipolar disorder can be, um, coexisting. For me, it's depression. Substance use is common. Uh, Seeking those feelings, seeking that feeling of belonging, seeking to um, feel not empty, seeking to block out the trauma. Um, Eating disorders, uh, just another way to try and make you feel full, fill that hole, get pleasure, uh, gain so much weight that you hide yourself and you're uh, protecting yourself from the world. A lot of women who have been sexually abused end up gaining weight to protect themselves and force others to prove that they really want them by putting up with their obesity. And, you know, some people go ahead and lose all that years later once they've worked through that uh, issue. But eating disorders are very common in BPD. Uh, So are anxiety disorders. I definitely have anxiety and I've always had it. It's way more acute now with what I've gone through, but whatever. Um, There are a lot of complex things that are happening in the BPD brain. And it's still being researched. Um, But in essence, if you have BPD, a good summation is 
your brain is on high alert all the time. Things feel scarier and more stressful to you than they do to other people. Uh, If people have ever told you that you're overreacting, you're talking too much, you're a bit much, you're going too far, you probably have BPD. Uh, Your fight or flight switch is easily tripped. Mine definitely is because of the trauma that I encountered on the street and the fact that you've got to have your Nikes laced every minute. You might have to pop up, run away, go go down, gunshots, whatever. Um, You can't trust people. I'm on high alert still. It's faded since I've been home and safe, but it's going to be a while before I, you know, don't need to know where an exit is and feel comfortable not knowing who's behind me or things like of that nature. And I'm more comfortable in crowds. I hope to get there again and I'm really working on it. It's important to me. I don't want to be a person who has to be tiptoed around like a landmine. So you don't trigger me. Um, I really don't. And I really don't want to do that in my relationship or to my family. You know, my family doesn't need to accommodate me at all right now. And they sure as hell don't need to change the way they interact with people in order to be um, on eggshells with me. And that's something I just now realized in the last year. No one is beholden to change the way that they act or react in order to not trigger me or to comfort me. Uh, many people have been, you know, excessively loving and comfortable, comforting to me. My ex-husband was a very loving person and um, Mike was a very loving person. And my boyfriend now is not as demonstrative as they are, which I am struggling with. And I realize that I'm struggling with it. So I'm conscious of it and working on it. Uh, we also rarely have time together at all. Seeing as he's a single dad, uh, there's no childcare because the child is not ready to be left. And therefore, we haven't really been alone in, I don't know, seven, eight months. Uh, that's been an adjustment. And I've constantly had to stop myself from throwing the baby out with the bathwater because everything has changed. I want to be what I said to him in the beginning and see him through things. It's not his fault. This is really all because he's such a responsible person and a good dad, and he just had a child with the wrong partner. And a lot of people do that. But I really am trying to be more aware of how high maintenance I could be and try to be much less so. It's not something that I'm going to be able to sustain and still practice when I am counseling others. Um, I need to get to a place where I am more unshakable. There are things that can take me to the ground quickly. Still, there are less than there were, fewer than there were, but there are still things that will definitely trigger me and put me on a bad path. Um, like I said before, just to wrap up about BPD, um, personality disorders definitely have a stigma. Um, Personality refers to patterns of thinking, feeling, behaving, and attitudes and beliefs that make all of us unique. Uh, No one acts exactly the same all the time, but we tend to interact and engage with the world in fairly consistent ways. I can say that the ways that I've engaged with others, both romantically and not, have been overall a certain way, and most of it hasn't been constructive. I need to become less uh, fearful of abandonment. I need to become less self-deprecating and I need to become less uh, of a person who just hands over my entire heart in my hand at first meeting. You know, I wear a a special necklace. I got it for myself at Christmas because as I've stated before, I've lost my giant lifelong precious jewelry collection uh, when Mike died in our apartment and the people who basically left him to die looted it. Um, I got this necklace and it is a little hand, like a hand, like you would see in an old magician's drawing and it's palm up and the hands are in a beckoning 
position and there is a red ruby heart in the middle of it. And I like things that are the infinite entendre, things that are meaningful to me in a lot of ways. I only like meaningful and sentimental things. Like, for example, I have um, eight tattoos and they are all of names, initials, or something very personal. Um, I don't care about a bald eagle or, you know, uh, I don't even care about, like, uh, the emblems of, like, my favorite rappers. I don't put that stuff on me. I put people on me and in me and in my heart, and they live there forever. And the necklace that I bought symbolizes a couple things. First of all, the hand is a traditional uh, magical sign of sleight of hand. And being an addict involves constant sleight of hand. Um, I am definitely a manipulative person when I want to be. I mainly manipulate situations and people in order to gain something to give someone else. Uh, However, I still do it. And I need to be conscious of my manipulation. One of the other reasons I have this uh, necklace is because uh, the heart in the hand is how I have presented myself to others my entire life. And it has wounded me. Uh, The hand with the red in the middle is also my wounds from doing this. And finally, uh, the heart in the hand is also um, a reminder of how much my heart was in Mike's hand and how that was healthy and unhealthy and how it's held me back even now. So I am trying to visually and um, emotionally remind myself of the work I'm doing constantly. Um, Now that I understand the elements of BPD and the comorbidities it's brought into my life and the difficulties I've had with my ADHD and the ways that I've failed in, in ways that can be traced back to that. That's what's going to give me the strength to recover from it is the self-awareness. And, um, as the Dunder Mifflin computer said, don't know, uh, not sure. (laughs) just became self-aware. So I'm definitely a work in progress. I think that's obvious to any human being who's ever listened to me, known me, seen me. Um, I do have a great desire to recover though. And I believe in myself. I believe in the power that I have when I really care about something. I just have to stay the course, not be impulsive, not suddenly devalue everything I'm doing and press forward. And that is something that I've been working on for a year and I still have a ways to go. I've made a lot of progress in the last year, year and a half. Uh, But in other ways, I am either worse off or I haven't been able to fully address it. And all I can do is commit myself to doing that as often as I can, as much as I can, as deeply as I can uh, going forward. That's the only way that I'm going to continue to recover is to reconcile my actions with who I am and what has afflicted me. So... That's all I can advise all of you to do who are recovering from, you know, mental health issues or addiction issues. Um, be gentle with yourself, as I've said before. Um, a lot of these are a lot of this are things that were out of our control. However, the execution uh, was at least somewhat a choice, and for many people like me who are aware of what they're doing wrong, um, it just shows the pathology of the disorder and how powerfully the chemicals in our brains can interact or be lacking, or be too much, and what it can make us do. Um, My grandfather said to me a long time ago, and I think about this all the time, since my experiences in the last few years suggest otherwise, but I asked my grandfather, what is the difference between humans and animals? And he said, animal, or people are tame, okay? I've always thought of that, and yes, most people are tame, but there are many people who, due to 
mental afflictions, drug use, alienation, disadvantage are animalistic and about survival and about uh, getting high and about being out of pain and about getting money, you know, but most of the people out there are good. If you put yourself in a good environment, I always think, God, what would have happened if I had not been incarcerated? I can't even tell you that I was devolving daily at that point. And if I hadn't been removed from the environment, there's no way I would have survived. But once I was in a therapeutic environment, uh, surrounded by people who were doing the same as I was and on the same page, it was much easier. And being in a safe environment now, it's much easier. But it's still um, a lot to swallow and a lot to work through. So I just, I want everyone to know on the bad days, do whatever you can to make it a good day. A lot of us have problems with healthy coping mechanisms, but they are out there. And I urge anyone who's having kind of a meltdown or can tell uh, due to experience that they're headed into a dangerous mental situation, just tell someone right away, um, remove yourself from what's stressing you, do everything you can to calm down and, and create well-being that is not harmful, not with substances, not with, um, you know, impulsive behaviors that, that bring you any kind of feeling. Just try to do healthy coping mechanisms that will calm you and allow you to examine your behavior rationally and then change it in the future. Um, I've gone on for longer than I planned, but I think it's a worthy subject. So I hope that everyone's, um, kept attention and, and find, found some value in it. Um, I am going to continue to, uh, work my program and continue in school, continue in my healing and try to be set back less. Those are my goals right now. In addition to breaking into the, um, areas that I am seeking to break into like the comedy, the hip hop journalism, very important to me. Um, I'm just now seeing what I'm really good at and what I really care about. When you're recovering, you have to examine every part of yourself and see what was real and what wasn't. For example, all my life due to my sexual assault, I have had sort of a fear of black men. The, my assailant was black and that has nothing to do with anything, but it caused a fear in me because I was so young and because this was never addressed. I wasn't believed. I didn't seek help about it. I did not tell for a while. Um, so, and a couple of my boyfriends, pieces of shit that I've dated, they were, you know, white trash and had either, either racist beliefs or they acted like they did just to fit in with their, their social caste. And this sort of gave me a further reticence about it. Like, I don't, I didn't believe it. I'm really not racist. I actually adore black people, black culture. I think they are superior in many ways. I really do. But those beliefs were put there by some asshole in the past. Um, as with other, as with other beliefs and attitudes that I had been holding on to for no particular reason. And I jettisoned a lot of things that I thought I believed and realized those are not sustaining to me. They were never true. Um, and they don't serve me to hang on to me. So I've really worked on that issue. But, you know, everyone is at their own pace. Uh, we, can never, uh, we can never predict how uh, substances or life events or anything whatsoever will affect a given person. It's a crapshoot. 
and it's a crapshoot how you're born with your chemistry. Yeah, a lot is genetic, but you didn't ask to be born is my point. We're just thrown into a world, uh, jumping out of a plane, and we have only the people around us and what we see around us to emulate and learn how to be a human being. And unfortunately, these days, a lot of new humans are left without healthy behaviors to emulate. So be patient with yourself. Um, I will see you again soon. I'm going to do two or three more shows about BPD, various parts of life that it affects. I'm going to be covering love and sex addiction. I'm going to be covering um, the allure of the street life and of substance abuse. And I'm going to be covering eating disorders and self-image. Those are all things that are important to me that I have experience with and that I'd like to share my experience. So please join me next time. I can't say when it's going to be. I hope to maybe produce another show this weekend if I have time. But definitely next week, but don't quote me on that. So thank you again, everyone, for joining me. I hope that you've enjoyed yourself. Um, Again, welcome to all my new listeners. I'm so humbled by uh, you listening and your interest, and thank you so much. Um, Bye for now, everyone. Um, Be healthy, be well, and love yourself and others. See you next time. Thank you.